In our journey through the Gospel of John, we have arrived at a very interesting place in the Gospel of John, and that is at the beginning of John chapter 8, and I'm going to explain to you why it's interesting in just a moment. But if you would, open up to John chapter 8, and actually the very end of John chapter 7. John chapter 7, in verse 53, and we're going to read from John 7 and verse 53 into John chapter 8 and verse 11. That's going to be our text this morning. And the text reads like this, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Chances are you're familiar with that story. Uh, it is synonymous with the life of Jesus, become one of the most famous stories in the life of Christ. But before we get into the text and we talk about the story itself, the reason I said we're at a very interesting place is because something you will notice in the text of your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to use just two modern translations as an example. All modern translations deal with this passage in one way or another. Here's what the ESV does. It has the entire text in brackets, and it just makes mention of this fact. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. In other words, the earliest copies of the New Testament that we have available to us, this story is not in them. Okay, well, thank you for that. What does that mean exactly? Okay, but they put brackets there to let you know this is kind of a questionable passage and here's some information about it. The NIV goes a little deeper, offers us a little bit more information. Also in brackets, it says this, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not contain John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part, but they're found in other places. After John 7.36, John 21.25, Luke 21.38, or Luke 24.53. So it's not in the earliest copies, and when it does show up, it's scattered throughout John or even in Luke. Now, if you're just encountering this for the first time, and I can tell some of you are by the looks on your faces, you're wondering, what do we do with this information? What does this mean? How could it be that in our Bible is a text that we're not exactly sure where it comes from, and why isn't it in the earliest manuscript copies? And so I want to do two things this morning. I want to give you a little bit more information to help you maybe answer some of those questions. But number two, what I really want to do is what your appetite for further study. I'm hoping that by just sharing some information with you, this will cause you on your own to take a deeper look at this and ask yourself the question, should I spend time thinking more critically about passages like this? And I hope the answer is yes. And if you want to know more about it and you're eager to learn and you want to know about some resources, come and see me afterwards. I'll be happy to point you in the right direction. 
So let's get just a tad bit nerdy for just a minute here, okay? Here's some things you might find interesting when it comes to the history of this passage and why it's ended up here in our Bibles, okay? Number one, as already pointed out in some of the notes we just read, it is not in the earliest manuscript copies of the New Testament we have, which date to the third and fourth centuries. It's simply not there. There is reference to a story that sounds very much like this one. All the major details are the same. Found in a third century document. Not a New Testament manuscript, but a document, a Christian document, called the Didascalia Apostolum. That is uh, something I'm sure most of you are familiar with. You probably have copies on your, on your person right now. I'm just kidding. Obviously, you've probably never heard of it, but it's there. So an early Christian document references a story very much like this. It's not scripture, but it does tell us that at least early on, this story was known to the Christian community. Eusebius was very famous for writing um, an account of early Christianity that's known as church history. He lived in the second, or excuse me, the third and fourth centuries after Jesus. He mentions in that book that he wrote that a very similar story to this is found in a document called the Gospel of the Hebrews, which unfortunately has been lost to history. He knew it, and he knew that this story was found in it, and he tells us that that document was written by a man named Papias of Hierapolis who lived in the first and second century. So you've got a man, you know, contemporary to the apostles that knew of this story, okay? That still doesn't place it in the Bible, but at least the story is known. Earliest manuscript evidence placing it in John. So the first time we find it in an ancient manuscript where it's actually found in the Gospel of John is in a Greek and Latin codex that dates to the 5th century after Jesus. That's the first time that we have a copy. That doesn't mean that it didn't exist earlier. It's just the copy that we have. The earliest that we have today that it shows up in John is 5th century. A Latin church father named Ambrose of Milan who lived in the 4th century knew about the story and knew of it in its traditional location in John. So he references it, and he talks about the fact that it's located where we find it today, at the end of chapter 7 and into the first part of chapter 8. Also, Jerome and Augustine, if you're not familiar with those names, they are two of the most influential 4th and 5th century Christian authors and thinkers. Jerome was responsible for the Latin Vulgate translation of the New Testament. Augustine wrote things that people still reference today that shape Christian thought, very influential leaders in the early church. They were both familiar with the story, but they talk about the fact that even though they know of it, they also know that it wasn't found in every manuscript that they had available to them at the time. So where does that leave us, thinking about some of those things? Well, let me just remind you of a couple things we know from Scripture itself. First of all, think about Luke chapter 1 and how Luke opens up his gospel account. This is what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm doing what any good historian would do. I'm writing this account of the life of Jesus, but I'm using what? First-hand eyewitness accounts. He's surveying the information available to him. He's looking for accounts. He's got sources, and he's putting those sources together in a document. So there are lots of stories being told orally among the early followers of Jesus. Luke is taking from those oral stories, and he's writing them down and putting together a gospel account for us. 
It says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. It's a beautiful introduction to his gospel, and I just share that to, to let you know that it, Jesus himself did not write an autobiography. How did the early Christians share his stories? They shared them orally. They told those stories. But then the Spirit, inspiring the four gospel authors, prompted them to collect those stories and write them down. Does that mean that everything Jesus ever did or said, does it mean that every one of those stories that was told by the earliest followers ended up in our New Testament? No, it doesn't. And the reason I know that is because of this passage. John chapter 21, at the end of John's gospel, he says... This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down, reflecting on the entire gospel. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Aren't you glad John's not that long? Because imagine how long this series would last, right? But he's just making a point. There was a lot of other things we know he did and said. A lot of other stories about the life of Jesus that didn't end up in my story, John says. But he selected the ones he did. Remember what he said back in chapter 20, we keep referencing in this story. These things I did write so that what? You might have belief. And that by believing you might have life in his name. Okay? So I just want to remind you that it is very possible, although we don't know, but it is possible, that this is a very early story that this is something the early Christian community knew of, that this story was told about Jesus. And you can understand why. It's a beautiful, moving story. But that the story didn't find an immediate home in the Gospels, and over time, they inserted it in various places, and then eventually it ended up where it does now in the Gospel of John. Now, I am fully aware that that does not satisfy all of your questions and curiosity. Like I said, I'm hoping it just makes you want to study further. The Bible is an amazing document, a well-attested document, a trustworthy document. And if this leads you to believe, as some critics would have us, that, oh, you can't trust anything in the Bible because how do we know it's original to begin with? Well, let me assure you, the evidence is overwhelming that the things that are contained in the Scriptures have been there from the beginning. This is not a document that was manipulated and changed and edited over time. I'm talking about the 27 books of our New Testament. We don't have the original copies, but we have very early copies, and they look just like what we're reading today. So I don't want you to get the impression that you can't trust the New Testament, but there are a handful of short passages that we're not sure exactly whether they were original or not, and it takes some effort on your behalf to learn about that and to come up with your own conclusions. My conclusion is that I'm going to teach on this this morning. Some people would suggest that that's not a wise thing to do. Since we can't be certain it's not there, then let's just ignore it. Or let's suggest that you study it on your own, but I'm not going to preach from it publicly. Well, I think that's a silly approach, honestly. This is a story, like I said, so synonymous with the life of Jesus that to skip over it would just be a really odd thing to do. There is power in this passage, and I want to share it with you this morning. Okay, so let's think about the text then itself. Not questions about the text, but what the story is actually about and what we might glean from it. 
As we think about this story, there's two questions that commonly come up. And it seems like we fixate on these two questions. And sometimes we fixate them, fixate on them to the point that we don't really get at the heart of the story because we're so interested in these peripheral things. Number one, where is the man in this story? Now, there's a lot of guys present in this story, but where's the man? What man? The man that committed adultery with the woman. You've got a woman caught in the act of adultery. If she's caught in the act, a man was present, and yet is there any man mentioned in this story? No, they just bring this woman. And by the way, what do they do with her? They make her stand in front of them and then call Jesus and question him in this. Now, where is the man in all this? So the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it's commanded to stone such women. What do you say? This one I think we can answer from the text itself. Where is the man? And the answer to that question is he's not there because they're not really interested in justice right now. That is not the purpose of this whole fiasco. They're not interested in finding the man and the woman and dealing with the situation as the law of Moses told them to. They're interested in one thing and one thing only. In verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This whole rodeo is all about trying to humiliate Jesus publicly and finding a reason to turn the crowds against him. And so, like we find many times in the gospel stories, those who are opposed to Jesus put him on trial. He's really the one on trial here, not the woman. Okay, they're trying to find a way to accuse him by tripping him up. What is their idea here? What's the thinking? What's their prerogative? How are they going to trip him up? Well, two things. Two questions come up by putting him on the spot and saying, how are we going to deal with this? Question number one is, should the law be upheld? The law was clear. There is a penalty spelled out for those caught in the act of adultery. So Jesus, what say you? Should we uphold the law or should we ignore the law? And obviously, either way he answers that question, what? Someone's going to be upset. Right? It's no different in the church today. There's questions that you can preach on publicly where no matter how you answer them, somebody's going to get mad at you, right? They're trying to put him in a position where he's got to answer one of those questions. Okay, but in doing so, if he were to say, yes, we must uphold the law, he's also making a statement, number two, about the authority of Rome. Because they did not have the authority of the Israelites to issue a verdict of the death penalty and then carry that out without permission from the Roman authorities. So if he were to say, yes, stone the woman, and they were to do it there on the spot, that would be a bold statement about what he thought about Roman authority. And so that's what they're thinking. We've got this perfect setup. They don't care about the woman. They obviously don't care about the man. They care about trapping Jesus. And so they think they've got a perfect setup. But how many times did these setups succeed in the gospel stories? Right? Jesus finds a way to address not their question, but the heart behind their question. And what's, it, it, one of the things that makes him so powerful. So look what happens here. Okay? Question number one, where's the man? Question number two, what did he write? All right, this is what everybody wants to know. Right? What, did, what did he write in the dirt? Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. It's mentioned twice, by the way, as if the author of this really wants us to focus in on Jesus writing in the dirt. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So what did he write? You want, want to have some fun? Just Google, what did Jesus write in the dirt? And see how many articles people have written. I finally figured out what it is. And some of it sounds great, and it can be very moving, these ideas that people have. But the short answer is, what did Jesus write? I don't have any idea. 
I don't know because the text doesn't spell it out, but I do find it interesting that we're invited to think about it, right? And I think the idea here is that whatever he's doing, it's all meant at disarming the aggression of these men. And it does it even for us today. Because you can imagine those people sitting there as they're trying to trap him, thinking, well, he's not taking this very seriously. What, what is he doing? Why is he writing in the ground? And we're still asking the same question today. All right, if you figure it out, by the way, let me know. I'm interested. Okay, here's what I'd really like to do with this text. I'd like to invite us into an opportunity to think critically about the way that we approach stories, narratives in the Bible, and how perspective impacts how we deal with these stories. Okay, so what is our perspective when it comes to reading this story? Where do we insert ourselves into these stories? Because that's what we do with narratives. I've talked about this before. Even if you're reading a favorite book, a fictional book, what do you like to do? You like to put yourself in the story somewhere, right? You associate with something, someone in the story, usually the main character. Our tendency a lot of times is to make ourselves Jesus in stories like this, right? We're the one who handles it perfectly, except do we ever handle anything perfectly? No. And Jesus does something here that's not even up to us to do, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. So let's think about two perspectives here. Number one, we place ourselves in the perspective of the accusers. Okay, the Jewish men who have brought this woman, stood her up in front of everyone, and are accusing her, the ones who are trying to trap Jesus. If we think about this story from their perspective and how it might apply to us. Verse 7 says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin... Be the first to throw a stone at her. Does that answer the question they're asking? No, except yes, because it answers the heart. He knew their motivation, and he knew how to disarm their aggression in this moment, and he does it brilliantly. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Of all the things Jesus ever said, this is one of the most famous, and one of the most well-known, and one of the most taught and one of the most quoted. So what does it mean? If we place ourselves in the position of these people who act as accusers, and by the way, I'm so glad that Blair referenced Zechariah 3 today because if you want an interesting study, and one day when we have time, we'll do this, God permitting. If you study Scripture and who Satan is, and you think about Satan in the role of accuser, it's an interesting study. You think about the accusers here, these people, these humans, these men that act as accusers to this woman, we found her, we caught her in the act. There's no doubting it. We know what she did. She's absolutely guilty. What are we going to do? Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It sounds very much like things Jesus have said in other places. Matthew chapter 7, the first two verses. Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. How many of you love that passage? I don't. It terrifies me. I'm going to be judged the same way I've judged others? That's the point. He's trying to disarm us yet again to think critically about the way that we hold people to lofty expectations that we don't hold ourselves to. One of his criticisms is of the Pharisees. They love to do things that they don't, themselves don't do. Tell you to do things that they themselves don't do, right? That's at the heart of hypocrisy. You will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he goes on and he uses one of his most famous illustrations. You remember what it is? Why are you so obsessed with getting the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you've got what? A log jugging out, uh, jutting out of your own eye, 
right? And if you take time to picture that in your mind, it's amusing, right? It's one of, one of the ways Jesus was a brilliant teacher, using illustrations like that to make his point. Do you get the point? If we put ourselves in the position of the accusers, what do we learn from this story? If that's the perspective that we have when we read this passage, suddenly it disarms us and it should humble us and give ourselves an opportunity to be critical of our own motivation sometimes. I think sometimes we get convinced that God has given us a purpose and it is singular and it is to hunt down and find and expose and bring to trial every sinner in the world. We are the judge and jury. We are the accusers. Our job is to single out sin and to tell people just how sinful they are. Now, just part of what we find the early Christians do is calling out sin? Yes. But can we do it in the way Christ can do it? No. Our job is not to accuse. And when we stand as accusers, these are the passages that should come to mind. Our job is not to accuse. We are not judge and jury. Our job is to bring people to Christ. These men inadvertently did the very thing that they should have done. They should have brought this woman to Christ. They just did it with terrible motivation. And they did it in a way that was meant to humiliate her instead of bring her hope. And yet that's what she finds anyway. So you think about these accusers. At, th at this, what, what was their response? Those who heard began to go away one at a time, and I find this interesting, the older ones first. <laughs> Why? Because the older you get, the more humble you become, right? The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. They dropped their stones and they walked away. And that's what we've got to do when we find ourselves tempted to stand in the place of the accuser. Put down your stones and let Christ do the work only Christ is called to do. Now, number two, the perspective of this woman, the idea that we too are caught in sin, this is not often the way we read this story because it puts us in an uncomfortable position where we have to be vulnerable enough to recognize our own sinfulness. And we're going to talk more next week about how difficult it is sometimes to get to that point. But listen to this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And you've got to imagine her bewilderment at this whole thing. And what's at stake for this woman? What's at stake? Her reputation, for sure. Perhaps her own marriage. We don't know if she was married. Now her sin is exposed. What does that mean for her and her life moving forward? And let's not forget that her very life is at stake here. Because the question was, should we stone her? What did stoning result in? Not bruises. Death. Should we put her to death? This is a sin punishable by the death penalty. Should we follow through it? This woman has everything at stake. And all of a sudden, those people that accused her are gone. And now it's just her and whom? And Christ. How is he going to respond? We don't know if this woman knew who he was had heard him preach. This is the first time she's ever seen him. We have no idea. But here she is, just her and this man, 
who somehow sent her accusers home, and now she's got to be wondering, what's he going to say? When Simon Peter saw this, this is Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, this is when Jesus tells the apostles to try their nets one more time, and they end up catching so many fish they don't know what to do with themselves. Jesus encounters, or Paul, Peter, excuse me, encounters Jesus for the first meaningful time here. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This is what sin does. It burdens us with a tremendous amount of what? Guilt. And you can imagine the humiliation of this woman in that moment. Her sin is laid bear. A lot of us go throughout our lives carrying a heavy burden of sin, but it doesn't always get exposed, does it? Sometimes we carry that burden alone. Through the entire length of our lives, we've got this sin that weighs us down, and only we know about it. Well, us and our Creator, right? But sometimes that sin is exposed. And sometimes, like this woman, we're left humiliated in a public setting because other people find out about just how broken we are, but either way, there's this burden that comes along with the weight of sin. Simon, at the realization of who Jesus was for the first time, and he, you know, he didn't fully get it, but he was starting to, when he realized who he was, his only reaction is, I do not deserve to be in your presence. Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Have you found yourself in that situation? That recognition of how sinful you are and the guilt of that sin is so burdensome that you do not want to stand before your God. Because of what? Because of fear. How is my God going to react? I realize how sinful I am. I do not want to stand before my God because I don't want to be found, what? Guilty of that in His sight. I can't bear the thought. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4 David is caught in his own sin, the sin with Bathsheba. And God sends a prophet to point it out, and David finally comes to his senses and realizes what he's done. He pens one of the most beautiful psalms, Psalm 51. And this is what he says in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Do you ever feel like that? Like you've never gotten to a point in your life where your sin is just behind you. It's just sitting in this giant pile in front of you all the time. You can't move past it. David says, I know my sin. It's right there in front of me. I stare at it every day. There's no escaping it. But then he says this, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, is that true? Had David committed sin against other people in his sin with Bathsheba? Yes. Absolutely. People suffered as a result of David's sin. A man lost his life as a result of David's sin. He's not discounting the things he did against other people. He's just recognizing that when it's just him and his God, that weight is crushing him. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so the whole psalm is a plea. God, cleanse me of my sin. Purge me and wash me and make me white as snow. This is David's plea to his God. He learned something from that story. When you get to the end of 2 Samuel, there's this very interesting story. It's a little bit confusing. David does something that makes God very upset. He recognizes again his sinfulness. And he asks God for forgiveness. And God gives him three options of punishment. And gives David the ability to choose. Did anybody's parents ever do that to them when they were younger? 
It's torturous, isn't it? Okay, here's your punishment. You choose. Well, I choose none of the above, right? Except that's not an option. God gives David three options. One of them was to face the wrath of his enemies. The other two were to be subject to God's wrath. And this is what David learned about the character and the nature of his God. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Why? For his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. What this woman was about to learn is that it's a totally different thing to stand before a group of accusers that are your peers, other broken people carrying the weight of their own sin. Because what do we do with that? We tend to deflect. We want everyone else to be punished and held accountable, but not ourselves, right? And these men were guilty of that. It's one thing to stand before your peers and answer to their wrath. It's another thing entirely to stand before your God and answer to his. What do we know about God more than anything? That he is a God of mercy. And so David says, let me answer to God every time because I know who my God is. People, I don't trust so much. Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, Paul, reflecting on his own battle with sin, says this, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I can't seem to escape from sin by my own efforts. Who's going to save me from that? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what we learn when we stand just ourselves in front of our God. We learn something about the nature of God. That yes, God is merciful and that God's desire is to rescue us. This is his desire This is his natural position. God is not the accuser. Satan is the accuser. Sometimes we as humans stand in for him and do a pretty good job for him. Think he gets to go on vacation a lot. We act as accusers. But God does not act as accuser. That's not the natural position of God. God is redeemer and God is saver. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. The reaction to Peter's sermon. Remember, what did he just accuse them of? That this man, Jesus Christ, that they had killed was both Lord and Savior. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were heartbroken. It impacted them deeply. And they said to Peter, that's the weight of sin, right? When our sin is exposed. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Now that we know what we're guilty of, what do we do about it? And we know the next verse because we quote it all the time. Peter responded and said what? Repent and be baptized For, say it with me, the forgiveness of your sins. Now instead of talking about the mechanics of salvation, I just want you to think about salvation itself. That it is a thing that we have available to us is remarkable. That people who are guilty of the death of God's Son are offered forgiveness for that act. What does that tell you about the nature of the God that we serve? What shall we do? Maybe they were expecting nothing. There's nothing that can be done. You're guilty and you will pay for your sins. And instead they hear forgiveness. And imagine how they must have zeroed in on that word, forgiveness. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, another passage we know, talking about why isn't it, imagine this, first century still and they're already frustrated that Christ has not returned. 
Here we are 2,000 years later, right? Why hasn't he returned yet? Because the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is what? Patient with you? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is a statement about the nature of our God. Why is he not here yet? Because his mercy has not been exhausted yet. His grace has not been exhausted yet. His patience has not been exhausted yet. Ken taught, taught us about long-suffering today. Is God long-suffering? Yes. His desire is to save, not to punish. John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, the passage that Stefan read for us before our lesson. We talked about this when we got here. Let me remind you. For God did not send his Son into the world to do what? To condemn the world. Allow me to say it again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Are, are you with me? For God did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn the world. But to save the world through him. People have got this messed up idea in their heads that the natural position we occupy is that humans are generally good. In fact, more often than not, we're good. In fact, ask most people, are you sinful? I don't like that idea. I've done some bad things in my life, but I'm a pretty good person. This idea that somehow we deserve something good in life. But Paul tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. We don't like that idea. And so we convince ourselves that humanity is just kind of spiritually neutral. We're all fine. We're doing okay. We're solving our own problems, right? Look at the world around you. What a great job we've done at solving our own problems as humans, right? And then God screwed it all up when he sent Jesus because now if I don't believe in him, I'm going to hell. This is absolutely the way some people frame the redeeming work of Jesus. As if I was fine without him, but now that he came, I'm lost. What is John telling us here? No, wake up to your condition. You are lost. You are condemned already because of the sin that weighs you down. Jesus didn't come to take innocent people and make them guilty. He came to save guilty people and pronounce them innocent. Let's understand the work that God is accomplishing through Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because of sin. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So with that in mind, the weight of sin. This is what Jesus says to her. Where are your accusers? They're not here then neither do I condemn you. And I want to ask you, can you imagine sweeter words in the whole world than those? To stand in the presence of your God and your Savior, burdened by the weight of every sin you've committed in this life, terrified of what he's going to say to you, and you hear, neither do I condemn you. And Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. He invites this woman into repentance, into a new kind of living. 
A life no longer weighed down by sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. We are slaves to righteousness. There's an invitation given to this woman. We don't know how she responds. We don't know what happened to her next. But I'm asking you to read this story from her perspective and to put yourself in her position. If sin is weighing you down and Jesus is offering you repentance, the opportunity to repent, a life no longer burdened by sin, how will you respond this morning? Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same thing, it's exactly what we're talking about now. Are we in the position of the accuser or the accused? When you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, you hypocrites, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Well, hold on, now we're back to being terrified? Hold on, listen to what he says. Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you where? Repentance. Repentance. And that's where God was leading this woman in this story. Listen to me. You might have, right now, a line of accusers a mile long, all the people you've hurt, all the people you've wronged, all the people that just are looking for opportunities to find you guilty and condemn you. Because that's what we like to do to each other as humans. No matter how many accuser, accusers are lined up with stones in their hand right now, ready to pronounce judgment on you, it's just you and your Savior. Because eventually they're going to lose interest and they're going to drop their stones and they're going to go home. The only one we really answer to is our Creator and our Savior. And when you stand alone before Him and everybody else has gone home, where are, you, where are your accusers? They're gone. What are we going to hear from Him? That's the question. Neither do I condemn you. As we wrap this up, I want to remind you that this is the perspective that we need to hone in on. The perspective of who are we in light of who Jesus is. And as we understand, as we come to understand more the problem of sin in our own lives, the question is, what is the solution to the problem? What is the solution to sin? And as John is so powerfully reminding us throughout his gospel, and as we're reminded in this story here, the, the, the answer isn't a what. It's not what is the solution to sin. It's who is the solution to sin. And what is his name? What is his name? Jesus. Jesus is the solution to sin. If you stand accused this morning, and you are burdened by the weight of sin, and you are ready to be free from that, if repentance is what you desire, if a new life is what you're looking for, if a easier burden and a lighter load is something you crave in your life. If the words, neither do I condemn you, are the only words you want to hear from your Savior's mouth, then I've got good news for you this morning. He died to set you free. Won't you respond to that this morning? How can we serve you? We're going to stand, we're going to sing a song, I'm going to offer an invitation as I always do. Would you think about it maybe a little more critically this morning than you normally do? I'm, I'm honest with you this morning. I'm being serious. If you are burdened 
lay your burden down this morning? How can we serve you? Let's stand, let's sing. Come forward and let us know. I love